steaks around here always follow the same pattern. It arrives steaming on a black plate with a fried egg and a small sample of dry vegetables. For something which is so standard, the menus are ridiculously long, and that's because the steaks are chosen by birthplace. You can have the New York steak, the Australian steak, the Parisian sirloin, the English rump and so on. Your cynic will nod to the knockoff Nikes and Gucci's which China is infamous for and declare, New York my hoof. But at the end of the day, that steak could have come from a specially moon-reared cow and I would have approached it with the same sublime monochrome indifference which had seized me that weekend. Yes, I was on the downward slope into the valley of depression. From the steakhouse we went to Boutique Street, to a little cafe beside the canal. We bought a couple of glasses of whiskey, the size of which suggested that spirits were not something they traded in very often. These were Herculean whiskies, Titanic whiskies, Pacific Ocean whiskies. None of that weights and measures bullshit in this place. It was top it up all the way, just what the doctor ordered. The cafe was tiny, with two tiny rooms bathed in seedy red. Visitors had scrawled Chinese words on heart-shaped post-it notes and stuck them to the wall. Occasionally, someone had dabbled in a little English, writing things like, Love forever coffee, or Can English write today? And Can you find the edge of the city? That last one was Jess. She then started telling me about the movie Dark City, where the citizens can never reach the edge of the city. That's why I like living near Greenwich, she concluded. You're right next to the sea. I eyed her with curiosity and wondered whether Jess was confused about the location of Greenwich or whether she simply didn't know the difference between sea and a river. Both could be true. Warmed a little with Johnny Walker Black, we proceeded to find another bar. We zipped down the road on the e-bike and found a German-style bar with some English teachers inside. It was a son and a mother, British, both working in a training school in Changshu City Centre. They worked evenings which left many a morning free to be spent sleeping off hangovers, and tomorrow was to be no exception. The young man, perhaps 30 years old, was what the tabloids, with all their derogatory classist venom, would call a chav, a hoodie, or an asbo yob. He boasted about the money he earned and how easy his job was, and told us how unfortunate we were to live on the outskirts of the city and have to wake up at 7am. It's a fair point. On we went to Mr. Moe's bar where we found a waitress with blue hair and a veritable busload of drunk Chinese lining up to sing karaoke. Chinese karaoke is almost always a forlorn, crooning affair. Not since Barry Manilow has a singer peered so wistfully into the eyes of their audience. Not since Celine Dion have so many chord progressions been so predictable. We went through the same introductory spiel with the blue-haired waitress that we do with everyone. Where we're from, what we do until some smart chap saved us by revealing a bottle of tequila and inviting us to play a game which can only be called Blue Blue. With four fairly drunk individuals waiting with clouded eyes, you thrust your fist forwards in a kind of paper-scissor-stone action, saying Blue Blue and then a number. Blue Blue Four. The players all hold out their hands, each showing a chosen number of fingers which they hope doesn't match the number that was called. So, blue, blue, four, and if you're holding out four fingers, you're drinking, mister. The person calling out the number also wants to make sure they don't hold out that number of fingers, which gets increasingly trickier with inebriation. 
Anyone whose hand matches the number of fingers downs their tequila. This someone was mostly Jess. On other tables, young drunk adults played the most popular bar game around here, a dice game called Yao Shaizu, and the bar cackled with the sound of dice rumbling around cups and falling onto hard tables. The players guess the sum total of the dice under the cup, and the losers drink. This game provides the soundtrack to many a Chinese bar, but I could never understand the appeal of doing mass while drunk. Eventually, after Jess snoozed a little with a shot glass still in her hand, and I'd drunk enough tequila to efficiently cloud my judgement, I decided to show these warbling Chinese how to sing. To much applause and expectation, I clumsily took to the stage, cleared my throat at the keyboard, and proceeded to play a beautiful piano song by Radiohead called Like Spinning Plates. But for some reason I couldn't seem to get far beyond the first note, and once the attentive crowd had turned back to their games, I called out for another tequila and stumbled off the stage back into obscurity. All things considered, it was a pretty good gig. Sunday was predictably slow and quite miserable. I watched Roland Emmerich movies, which are great because you only need the intelligence of cardboard to appreciate them to their fullest extent. They are entirely devoid of content, and lure you into a stupor so complete that your heart rate drops and you're technically dead. The first was Independence Day, which I really like. I watched Jeff Goldblum be smart, Will Smith be hot, and aliens be slimy and technologically advanced all with the same expressionless mug. Then I watched The Day After Tomorrow. It's such an absurd and politically charged vision of the globally warmed end times that it makes green lobbies everywhere appear like paranoid loons with their imagination hooked up to Nostradamus's brain in a vat. I really like it. But 2012 is absolute rock bottom as far as Emmerich movies go. There are more cliches in this movie than there are facial expressions, and enough CGI to cause an aneurysm. In other words, all the ingredients for an absolute belter of a movie. A totally mind-numbing drool-fest. And yet, somehow, it falls flat. Perhaps it's because John Cusack seems so miscast when he's not running a vinyl record shop or wallowing in self-doubt, or because it's impossible to want any of the main characters to live, or because they attempt to inject some meaning through the notion of yawn, humanity, and it's so stretched and trying that it can't help but make you lose faith in humanity altogether. This movie is simply shit, and I gobbled it up. It's not only American movies which scrape the barrel of creativity and offer their audience a flavourless yet colourful blend of moist vomit. The Chinese movie industry excels at this particular art, which is great because not only can you leave your brain at home, but you also don't need to understand Chinese to know what's happening. I had a TV in my room, flat screen and mounted to the wall, but I never watched it choosing instead to hunt down pirated movies online and watch them on my laptop. But when 2012 concluded with all the disappointment that was promised, I felt around for nearby objects, and the most useful one was the TV remote. I pressed a button and let the remote drop back to the floor. I'm not sure of the Chinese name of the movie, but I'm pretty sure the English translation was Romance Clichés Told Back to Back. 
the free-spirited young professional female was causing all kinds of trouble for her handsome yet serious boss, until off they went on holiday to Thailand, that was. Then we had them playfully gallivanting in a city fountain in slow motion, running through the marketplace after displeasing a vendor, and having a passionate night together to the creepiest soundtrack ever used in a family movie since Fantasia. Of course, the rebellious young vixen quietly left his apartment early the following day, racked with self-doubt, but before long they were trying to catch fireflies on the beach, something which, in the end, only the steady hands of a man could do. TV shows are no better. They generally consist of a beautiful young woman crying and a handsome young professional man looking guilty and confused. They're highly influenced by the TV of South Korea, the pop culture juggernaut which punches so far above its weight. The Chinese do marathon sessions of these drama shows, as we do back home. How was your weekend, I once asked Lily, the teacher of my art class. Lazy, she said. Watch a lot of TV, a Chinese show. Oh, is it the one with the beautiful young woman crying all the time and the handsome young man looking guilty and confused? I asked. Oh, you know it. Look hard enough, though, and you'll find that not all Chinese shows follow the caricature that I'd picked up on. Hu Ma Mao Ba, or... Tiger mum, cat dad, turns the cliché on its head, following a strict mum and an easy-going dad. It's a premise which touches on contemporary Chinese issues of the family, and also promises some light-hearted relief after a long day in the office. What wasn't expected was the man in Shanghai who sued the actress who plays the tiger mum for staring too hard at him through the television set. True story. Monday struck like a wet towel across a bare thigh. I joined the weaker robot, completing all tasks sufficiently, but not being technically conscious as a human is. The changing weather meant that we did the national anthem in class. I sat behind the desk in sleep mode, only background processes running. At 9.05 a signal was sent and I began the first class of the week. Teaching in China, if my cradle of elites experience is anything to go by, which it is, requires more than a little of the entertainment factor. A certain amount of prefabrication goes into anything that may be seen by an external agent, such as a visitor, a boss, or a parent. Extra efforts are spent contriving classes for the benefit of these occasions. One of the reasons that the Chinese excel tests is because they learn content insofar as they will be tested on it. One of the reasons the cradles kids do so well on tests is because they're not allowed to do badly. The lowest grade in the winter test was C. It's not uncommon for a teacher from overseas to shake their head and wonder at the seeming lack of depth of it all. Parents are paying for fun as well as language, for the jolly faces on the children. And who wouldn't want that? Chinese kids are learning at a very young age what it means to compete for a prosperous future. And that's serious stuff. Penny, the American teacher from grade 7, told me of a 12-year-old Chinese boy she had met a year before in a previous school. He was studying hard in order, in his words, to get a good place at university, get a good job, get a good wife, and afford to bring up a child. He was 12. At that age, I was worrying that my roller skates weren't cool enough. The children at my school are already ahead of the game, relatively speaking. If good teaching, high intelligence, and good grades don't get them into good universities, then one imagines that their privileged contacts will. But until then, I am, in principle, happy to have fun. And there is a pedagogical logic to boot. Games are a great way to learn languages. But this good intention was to come face to face with my mood. Those kids were in for a tough week. 
We've never written so much or brainlessly repeated so many words in our lives. Boring would be an aspiration. In between these lengthy epics of English fodder were nihilistic moments of hysteria, careless and carefree odes to the gods of educational carpe diem. I was teaching absurd words to iterate phonetic sounds, like the shashi-dash-bashi-mash-monkey, the chicky-chat-kitchen-chicken, and taking kids' chairs away from them and making them teach instead. At the back of the room, my co-teacher, Yuen, was unamused. But after a few weeks, I pulled myself out of this particular depression, and I was once again functioning fairly well. During that time, I'd sunk even lower. Four Transformers movies. And I'd begun building a table from bamboo. Did you know that bamboo grows a metre a day? said Jess. Rubbish, I said. Jess was obviously regurgitating some fact learned by osmosis and forgetting the decimal point. But she was right. Or, at least, one species of bamboo can grow 91 centimetres in a day. It's a Guinness World Record, so it must be true. And it's not only tables that can be made from bamboo. Applications for bamboo are endless. From the bowstring instrument known as the Jinghu to Chinese medicine. From an inventively sadistic mode of torture where bamboo is grown through the body of the victim to the scaffolding we see on the new buildings in Changshu. Bamboo has a tensile strength comparable to steel and can contribute to a healthy diet. Pandas love it. My table was made from four large legs, each with a notch carved out. Into these notches were thin, cross pieces of bamboo which secured the widths. The length parts were again large pieces which slotted into the hollow tops of the legs. On top of these lengths lay two dozen thin bamboo rods of varying girths, so that nothing could sit evenly upon them. This design feature would render the table useless, if it weren't for the fact that the damn thing wouldn't stay up anyhow. For half its construction it stayed on the desk in my apartment. This was fine until the second time it collapsed, when I realised that if I ever do finish the table, I won't be able to move it, ever. So I relocated to the corner of the room, the proposed site of the table, and rebuilt it there. I got seamlessly to the point where I was threading string through the bamboo to toughen it up when it collapsed again, this time with various bits bound together with entangled string. It might sound pathetic, but this table had come to symbolise my Sisyphean battle with life, and every collapse made me boil inside under the weight of the absurd pointlessness of it all, and yet strengthened my resolve to rebuild it. I will put a plant on this table, I said to Jess with clenched teeth. I needed something to focus on, a project, something hands-on, something which couldn't be finished in one setting, something which, one day, I might be able to sit back and admire. I built that table to get away from myself. Carpentry, it's not me, an assertion proved by the finished table itself. But indeed, before Christmas, I had a table, a bamboo table in the corner of the room with a plant sat on it. I might not have sat back and admired it as such, but... Considering its precarious stance, I most definitely sat back. Next time on Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you, a quick trip to the silk capital, Suzhou City, back to school to get bribed by a student's parent, and off to the 1960s to discover a little about the communist healthcare system. <laughs>